This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Today is April 3rd, 2016, and we are talking about entheogenic comedy with Madison Perry, a writer and performer from L.A. Hey, Madison. Hello. Welcome to Entheogen. Thank you for having me. We'd like to start with a quote from one of our favorite comedians, Bill Hicks. Why is marijuana against the law? It grows naturally upon our planet. Doesn't the idea of making nature against the law seem to you a bit paranoid? You know what I mean? It's nature. How do you make nature against the fucking law? Grows everywhere, serves a thousand different functions, all of them positive. To make marijuana against the law is like saying God made a mistake. You know what I mean? It's like God on the seventh day looked down at his creation. There it is, my creation, perfect and holy in all ways. Now I can rest. Oh my me. I left fucking pot everywhere. I should never have smoked that joint on the third day. That was the day I created possums. Still gives me a chuckle. leave pot everywhere, that's going to give humans the impression they're supposed to use it. Now I have to create Republicans. <laughs> and God wept. I believe it's the next verse. You know what I mean? I believe that God left certain drugs growing naturally upon our planet to help speed up and facilitate our evolution. Okay, not the most popular idea ever expressed. Either that or you're real high and agreeing with me in the only way you can right now. I forgot the code. Is it two blinks yes, one blink no? Do you think magic mushrooms growing atop cow shit was an accident? Where do you think the phrase, that's good shit, came from? Why do you think Hindus think cows are holy? Holy shit. The late, great Bill Hicks. Love it. Yeah, that was an awesome one, man. I hadn't heard that one in a long time. I'd kind of forgotten about it, I guess. Yeah, me too. It was actually perfect. I'm, I'm glad we uh, put a lot of thought into that. Was, uh, yeah, so th- this introduces our uh, new series on entheogenic comedy. Um, and uh, I guess, uh, w- which of you uh, recommended Madison as kind of our, our inaugural guest for this series? Uh, I can't so- remember if it was Kevin or me, but it was most likely one of the two of us. If it turns out well, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> good plan. Good plan. So, Madison, you have a uh, apparently a humorous memoir coming out in May. Is that uh, is that right? I do. I wrote a book. It's my first book. It's called Available, a memoir of heartbreak, hookups, love, and brunch. And uh, it's about uh, I did a lot of dating for a year and uh, ended up going to Burning Man for the first time that year and uh, trying trying some drugs for the first time in my life that year. Uh, so it's all about that. Yeah, May 24th, it comes out. Uh, it's you can available. pre-order on Amazon, I've seen that. Yeah, 
Yep, it's uh, on Amazon. My name is spelled M-A-T-T-E-S-O-N, uh, Perry. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to find it on Amazon and at my website. Um, but yeah, there's stories of Burning Man and psychedelics use and love and dating and uh, a lot of embarrassing stories about me that time has rendered as comedy, hopefully. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, I'm really excited about it. My, I, I've been friends with Madison since college. Did did you guys know each other, Kevin and Madison, back in back in school? <laughs> no, we've had it. We've had uh, we've had a couple of rounds of trying to figure out if maybe once we were in the same room, stoned, listening <laughs> to fish with you. <laughs> so I think that's like the extent of if we knew each other. No, I actually, I, and I, I remember you. I remember his name because Madison's not the most common name. I do remember you mentioning him from time to time in school, and then. Um, Especially later on, the, the years just before that Burning Man, and then uh, I had a fantastic introduction to Madison because I met him on uh, on one of our famous uh, group trips out onto the playa and uh, had a great night with him. So that was uh, an awesome introduction. Yeah, that was a we met in a, a night of entheogenic comedy. Uh, yes, <laughs> mostly I, that's one of the the most I've laughed uh, in my entire life was that night. Sure, sure. Burning Man is a fertile environment for both entheogens and comedy, so I, they, they pair very well there, don't they? Yes, they, they do, indeed. <laughs> so yeah, I guess the, the broader idea is that entheogens yeah. can be, um, uh, you know, uh, can, can you know, inspire comedy, um, but also comedy can be entheogenic uh, in and of itself. It can open your mind. Madison, you had some thoughts about sort of like how enth- how comedy does that, how comedy can sort of be, you know, analogous to entheogens in that way yeah it's funny i asked uh kevin kind of tell me what we were gonna be talking about this show and he sent me he just said entheogenic comedy um and i see now that could mean talking about comedians who discuss entheogens Mm -hmm. uh but i had took it initially as comedy as an entheogen uh and so the similarity is between between them um between laughing and comedy and between whether it's through meditation or substances getting to that place and I think there is a real connection because the thing I find interesting about comedy and just a little background about myself I I did stand-up comedy for a couple years in New York City and never really made it to a professional level Um, but I've always loved comedy and for a couple years I was incited and just seeing a ton of comedy and, and getting to meet a lot of comedians and and so I've I've thought a lot about it And the thing that's interesting to me about comedy is that we basically laugh at something before we know why it's funny on a conscious level. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and I think so much of life, uh, whether it's through meditation or prayer or taking substances or comedy, is trying to have a little moment of zen where you're completely in the moment. And, you know, like an orgasm is that, uh, bungee jumping is that. And I really think laughter in that moment, you're thinking about nothing else. You don't know why you've been touched, it's a pure subconscious reaction. And so it's sort of a way uh, to tap into that part of us we're always trying to get at uh, throughout life. That's a really good point. And that, that's why I think the uh, stand-up philosopher kind of, uh, you know, uh, comedians are so effective because they, they, like, they have those moments and then they, they seize those moments to like plant those seeds that, that broaden people's awareness. You know, you, you, have a, you have a laugh and you're not sure why, and in that moment, your mind is open, and you know that's when that's when Hicks or Carlin, you know, school you at that point, and 
and you, you learn something and you don't even know that you've learned it really, but it's kind of in retrospect, you, your, your mind has changed forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a, we, we also, we've discussed this George Carlin quote a few times, right? About, um, I, he described marijuana as a value changing drug. And I believe that his comedy or Bill Hicks comedy or is value changing comedy. It's comedy that, uh, as you said, you laugh while you're there and then you go home kind of deeply processing the information that you were given. And, uh, and I just, just to add something too, I think that stand up comedy is possibly the most difficult, uh, performing art there is. Um, if you think about just the sheer number of people that are dedicated to it and how few of them, um, can actually entertain an audience for an, an entire hour, and uh, not to mention the, the greats like a Hicks or Carlin who can go above and beyond that. And uh, I, <laughs> I tried it once myself and it was a terrifying experience. <laughs> so uh, Madison, I give you ton, tons of credit for going about it for two years, man. That is, <laughs> that is not easy. Yeah, it's a, it is a really, it's a really difficult uh, art form. And I still perform some. I do mostly sort of comedic storytelling uh, with organizations like The Moth and such. But very quickly when you start doing stand-up, you just see the different – I could just see – for me, it was never something I wanted to do full-time professionally. I just thought it would be fun and another extension of writing, which is my main passion. And very quickly, I could see some people just have this thing where they are funnier than everyone else. And uh, – I, I'm like a pretty funny writer, and I could I could do a well up there. But there's some people that just adjusting the microphone stand is funny for some reason <laughs> while they do it. You know, like you think of someone like Chris Farley, and just him walking into a sketch on Saturday Night Live is funny inherently. Yeah, sure. Some my magic side certain people. My mind jumps to like Andrew Dice Clay, like <laughs> taking the stage and letting like minutes go by without saying a word, and how funny <laughs> yeah. every gesture of his is. Yeah. Can I can I tell you my Andrew Dice Clay story? I got to see him live when I was about 15 years old, but the only way I could get into the comedy club was to be accompanied by my mother. <laughs> oh my god. Imagine that. Imagine like the height of awkward teenage years. Like an hour of Dice Clay with your mom next to you. Yeah. You know? Did you enjoy it in that uh, scenario? Uh, I did. I, you know, the first few minutes were really hard, especially because if you remember Dice Clay, he opened very hard and very abrasively. And yeah. uh, then I think I just forgot about it afterwards because, you know, as, as we said, the, these people tend to captivate you and, and you tend to forget about everything else and you kind of live the moment. And uh, yeah, and he was really, really funny. I had a really, I, had, I did have a really good time at the end. <laughs> well, there was something, Madison, you mentioned before about how you, we often laugh at something before we know why it's funny. Yeah. And is there, you know, I don't know. I, I I thought I heard something somewhere about how when you when you laugh, it actually disrupts your memory. Have you guys heard that anywhere? Is that like because a lot of times you come out of a movie that that you laughed a lot and you and you're like, man, what was that funny joke that I thought was so funny? And you're at a loss, <laughs> and you're like trying to think, man, I can't remember a damn thing from that movie. Like, that that, that has literally laughing. never happened to Kevin in his life. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I was actually bad while you were saying that. I was recalling like the jokes Madison told the night I met him, and I remembered several of them. Well, I don't remember them. So if there's something to Brad's theory, it's cool, man. I'm writing a memoir about them. You can get it next year. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. There is a there's a whole chapter about Acid Monday in my book. Oh, great! I can't wait. I'm so glad awesome. that like Fr Camp is like writing about things that happen at Birdie Man. It's so fantastic. <laughs> I, I do think it's uh, 
there is there is something there, Brad. I think it was Jerry Seinfeld. He had this sort of theory of comedy that getting an audience to laugh at a joke is like trying to get them to jump across this sort of ditch. And one side is the setup, and the other side is the punchline. And he said the, the key to a perfect joke is to get that gap just wide enough that it's thrilling to jump across, but they can get there. So if the gap's too narrow, that's an obvious joke. They see the punchline coming, not very thrilling. If it's too wide, they just don't understand, and they'll fall in. And so the perfect joke is like when you jump across a river on a hike, and you, you think you can barely make it, and you get to the other side, and you, you've got that rush of having jumped across. And that is a, what a joke is. It's because there's this gap of comedy is the unexpected. So you set something up, and then the punchline, the reveal, is something the audience didn't expect. And it's kind of exciting for them to understand this new connection that someone else has explained. Mm. Mm. That's, pretty, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Is, that reminded me of Carl Carlin Seinfeld also about comedy. <laughs> He's done all right. <laughs> And, you know, I, one thing I noticed when, you know, I don't think there's a, it's not a coincidence that there's a big overlap with comedians who are interested in things like LSD and mushrooms. Um, I remember, because I, I didn't do any drugs until I was 30 years old, and I sort of thought of them as bad, evil things. And then, I, you know, I've since tried some uh, psychedelics, and I really have enjoyed the experience. I just had this thought of like, man, cool people do drugs. <laughs> like, they, were, they were right in there. It is the cool people who are doing it. Bur Burning Man was your gateway drug? <laughs> it was, yeah. And uh, it was sort of a similar thing when you do stand-up comedy and you hang around with a lot of stand-up comics is they're very sort of thoughtful people who are just constantly thinking about what's weird and strange in the world. And so I think it's kind of a similar compulsion, whether through drugs or through comedy, to explore just the weirdness of living and, and being on this earth. Sure. That, that's funny, too, because when you're, um, you know, the laughing fits that come with either mushrooms or LSD that are sort of inevitable always come sort of at, um, at kind of the, the revelation of, of something that seems so ordinary normally that you suddenly see in a new light. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think of stupid examples come to mind, but I remember watching, um, you know, somebody walking with an umbrella and thinking that that was hysterical. Like this guy has like a little, <laughs> he, a little piece of roof that he puts over yeah. his head. He walks around with it, you know, or, or it's just like a dog on a, a dog on a leash, you know, it's like all the animals are wild and live in the woods, but we have this one that we like to put a, a rope around and like yeah. keep them in our house, you know, and just simple, stupid thoughts like that, that'll crack you up and, uh, you know, in, in, in that moment. And that's really like going back to Seinfeld. All he's doing, you know, his comedy is all very just, he's observing weirdness in the world. You know, like he, I remember he has a joke about the one hair that gets stuck to the side of your shower. And like, you shouldn't be able to do a joke about that, but he talks about it for like four minutes and it's really funny. And then next time you go and take a shower and you see a hair clinging to the side of your shower you remember it and you laugh and it's been there your entire life and that's kind of like the same experience you're talking about where you're on LSD and you see something you've seen a million times and you realize how absurd it is. Yeah, I, uh, the one that comes to mind for me is every single time I fly, I have George Carlin's entire like 15 minute <laughs> monologue about airlines flying in my head <laughs> and just how on point it is and how it has not changed. I mean, Things have evolved. Things are different, but there are so many little observations in that uh, that piece that just crack me up uh, when I'm on the plane. 
Yeah. One of my uh, favorite all-time comics, we would listen to the CD a lot when I was driving with my dad, is Stephen Wright. The Jerky Boys? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stephen Wright was really good at those observations. Yeah, and he, especially for this conversation about entheogenic comedy, is he never talks really much about drugs, but listening to his comedy is like seeing the world on drugs, like, because he just, he makes these funny observations, like, I'll, I'll read a couple and I won't do it justice because his delivery is incredible, but... Like he said, one night I stayed up all night playing poker with tarot cards. I got a full house and four people died. And it's just these like bizarre, absurd things. I remember there was one that I laughed so hard at it and I didn't even understand it as a kid. But it was something like, I met a nymphomaniac. She said she was attracted to Jewish cowboys. I said, hello, I'm Bucky Goldstein. And I just, I didn't even as a kid know what a nymphomaniac was or even like that Goldstein was a Jewish name, but just Bucky Goldstein was the funniest thing I'd ever heard at eight years old. <laughs> That's awesome. I think too, like Carlin, Carlin, the first time I ever saw Carlin, I was, uh, I saw him on TV on a, one of his HBO specials. I think I was to like 10 or 11 years old and it just cracked me up for an hour straight. I could not keep it together and I spent the next like three years or four years going to every flea market I could trying to scrounge up Carlin tapes from like all the old, you know, somebody selling junk who would have a, a ton of old cassette tapes and I just scrounged through hundreds of them and I'd always find one at like every flea market and I had like a special uh, case, you know, those old tape cases that zipped up and I had like 12 George Carlin tapes in there. It was like my prized possession. Yeah, you're like an anthropologist. You're like the Indiana Jones of uh, entheogenic <laughs> comedy. <laughs> it belongs in my CD player. <laughs> it belongs in a museum. Speaking of Stephen Wright, uh, Stephen Wright reminds me of um, Mitch Hedberg. Uh, you know, he's he's another sure. example of of someone who's clearly you know uh, had lots of experience or had lots of experience with with drugs. Um, but, uh, some, you know, some not so entheogenic drugs, I feel like. Right. Sadly and tragically. Um, but, uh, but you know, his stuff is just it, it, those simple observations. It's all like very tightly packed, you know, short observations that just make you think like for, for years, you know, you just like return to the, the concept for years to come. And his quote, the famous quote of, um, he, how he used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to too. <laughs> love, I love I love that concept. You know, I just I, I find myself going there all the time. Like you know, things I used to do that I still do, but I used to too. It's such a great concept. Yeah, I well, I I had I used to have to teach uh, that construction, and when I was teaching ESL, and that was that line was in my head all the time, and I would always think like, God, if these kids were just a little bit older. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the guy I also wanted to bring into this conversation because if we're gonna talk about. I don't know, great comics, but also comedy itself as as an entheogen or something that can produce sort of entheogenic effects. Uh, John Stewart is uh, who car I feel like kind of carries George Carlin's torch, um, and maybe even more to even more people, um, just just because of the being on cable TV and being on for so long. But I thought, you know, when we were I was thinking about this show, I thought, you know, there's something very entheogenic about satire itself um, just because it is so rife with criticism of whether it's political or social criticism whatever it is and it's sort of um, it's sort of interesting in a way that if I made whatever the point of a joke is that John Stewart is saying if I tried to make have a conversation with somebody of the opposite political opinion of the joke 
and I tried to make the point of the joke, they would they would not listen to me and they would hate me. But there's something about satire that sort of disarms their defenses and allows the point to kind of sneak in the back door. And and I feel like there are probably a lot of people who listened who liked John Stewart as a comic that didn't necessarily agree with him. Yeah, or, you know, and it can be sort of a litmus test, you know, and satire, I think, can do that. I was thinking of the same thing, Kevin, when we were talking about what these things have in common, like what a good comedian can convey and what an antigen experience can convey is oftentimes like a truth, you know, like a, something that hits you in a way that feels so sincere and, um, and how satire can very much do that for some people and it can very much not do that for other people and mm. like a, a book or in well, the film actually is more common um, that I think people have seen it versus read it but American Psycho. Ah, yes. And there is, you know, when I was living in New York and I was working in finance technology in my previous life and career, there were people that loved that film and genuinely have no idea it's satirical. <laughs> so the Stephen Colbert effect? <laughs> yeah. And it's really frightening when you get into a conversation with someone and you realize that that's the case. <laughs> it's almost like the purpose of that film was it's supposed to be a bad trip. But some people are like, that's a great experience. Really that. <laughs> like, like, no, this is a purposefully bad. Okay. <laughs> is it that sort of like Colbert almost, uh, especially at the beginning, I think the first two or three years, kind of right wing conservative people kind of confusing him for just another Fox talking head. <laughs> well, even when he got invited to the, the press dinner. <laughs> right. <laughs> The most uncomfortable half an hour of comedy in the history of the world. <laughs> and arguably, like one of the bravest performances of all time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, it is like uh, it's almost like comedians like that. The, the satirists—they are like the uh, the entheogen that uh, we have to take as a public to disrupt the perception of how things actually are. Right. Yeah, and that's sort of uh, the line of comedy and tragedy and and you know, how com comedy can be a way to make it palatable or, you know, a couple ways to think about the relationship going back to, you know, thousands of years ago and beginning of Western society, like comedy and tragedy where comedy is tragedy avoided or what was the other quote we were talking about, Joe, where comedy equals tragedy plus time. Right. Well, I think the, the idea in general is, um, if, uh, if something bad happens to you in the moment, it's really sad, but uh, you know, a year later, you might just laugh your ass off telling your friend about the time you shat yourself before uh, an, an interview for a new job. But at the time, it's really not that funny. Um, and you I haven't told me that story, Madison. <laughs> <laughs> hasn't been long enough yet for it to be comedy. Um, and the, the really interesting thing I've noticed about doing comedy and performing and doing storytelling is I have really shrunk that time. Uh, I'm basically, as a bad thing is happening, I'm like, well, this will be a fun story. And it actually makes <laughs> life uh, much easier to live when, at the very least, there's a silver lining of you'll be able to tell uh, a story about it and some, at some point. And, you know, I think a lot of, you know, comedians seem really tough because they're, they're super quick and they can shut down hecklers. But usually people that do stand-up comedy are extremely sensitive. You have to be super sensitive and aware and empathic in a certain way to do comedy because you're always observing and you're sort of taking in all the bad and processing it into funny. 
Um, so I think sometimes, you know, we not not everyone has the capacity to do that. So we can rely on comedians to do it for us. Do you have to be funny to, you know, avoid taking yourself too seriously? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I think that uh, comedians are very good at taking nothing seriously, um, which, you know, can sometimes leave you seeming cold. But I think a lot of people, uh, we suffer because we take ourselves in life so seriously. Um, so even if uh, you don't have the chops to go entertain a crowd of strangers, uh, at the very least, when something embarrassing happens, just just know if you go and share it with your significant other or a buddy and laugh at yourself, um, you'll feel better, and uh, it won't feel it won't sting quite as much. That's good advice. That's good Matt, advice, Madison. You you made uh, when we were speaking before the show. You you talked about storytelling itself, sort of as uh, kind of a, a quasi therapy experience. Would you uh, comment on that? Yeah, I teach uh, storytelling. So I, I do, I'm a performer and host for a storytelling show called The Moth, where every show there's a theme and people tell a five minute true story from their life. Some are serious, some are funny. Um, but what I've noticed is I teach storytelling and we, we drill down into, you know, I have them brainstorm ideas for story and we, I have to drill down because you want to make sure it's an important story, a story that will connect with other people and asking questions about why it's meaningful to the student really ends up being, you know, you're like, oh, I want to tell this story because I'm angry at my mom. Like, that's like where we end up a lot. Mm. Um, and what I've found uh, for myself in, in writing my memoir is it was an incredible uh, way to learn about myself because life is so chaotic and, you know, a movie has a start and an end and the credits roll and you learned your lesson, but life is not like that. There's a million subplots going on. It's, it keeps going until the, the big credits at the end, unfortunately. Um, and so the process of taking a bit of your life and putting the narrative structure to it, giving it a beginning, a middle, and an end is, is really satisfying. And really, it really helps you understand yourself and what happened and why you had these emotions because you have to explain them to someone else when you tell a story. And so you have to understand them yourself before you can explain them. Um, and then it's sort of like the, the tragedy plus time. You know, I really do think secrets have this psychic energy. They're these weights that kind of weigh us down. And so the more you can share your secrets, um, as soon as a secret's out, it stops being a weapon that can be used against you, that you're worried about someone finding out. And the best stories are not the ones about how great you are. The stories that go over the, the best with an audience are the ones about the time you screwed up, the time you were an idiot, the time you got shut down by the girl you wanted to ask to prom. Like, no one wants to hear a story about the guy who fucked every girl in high school and was super popular and won the football game. They want to hear about the nerd who finally got the girl. And so by telling the story, you, you start to understand, like, all these things that are weaknesses or you're embarrassed by, they're actually what connect us to other people because there's other people out there who have had the same thing happen to them. There's, like, a very thick theme of uh, vulnerability with a lot of what you're saying. You know, it's like... The, what makes a good story and what can make a good performer as a comedian is, you know, partly, you know, as well as not taking yourself too seriously is being able to embrace that vulnerability and feel comfortable sharing it. And, uh, that's huge. Yeah, sure. And we, we talked, uh, in kind of in the pre-show about, uh, entheogenic experiences being sort of unifiers and, and this sort of comedy is obviously a unifier, I mean, I think anybody uh, listening to that sort of story that can connect to it and connecting to a whole group at the same time, 
um, yeah, it's definitely a, a, a group a group experience that that brings people together. Yeah, I think it's it's a very nice break from norm. You know, you go through normal life and you're always basically trying to show the world how great you are. You know, so you get the job, so you get the girl, so you get a new friend. Uh, and so storytelling, and I think also using uh, psychedelics is a time for you. You know, you can. It's kind of like when a, a cat rolls over on its back and lets you rub its belly. Like it doesn't really want to do that because it's so vulnerable. You know, another cat could come and rip its guts out, but it's also the most pleasurable thing when you roll over on your back and someone rubs your belly and you just feel better having shared that with the world. I remember that night, that acid Monday when I guess you guys met, which is still blowing my mind. Um, we, we spent, we spent like six hours together, like well, that's away exactly from everybody else lost. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to talk about. Cause there was a moment where, you know, I think we were at temple and like Madison and I had this, like, he's like, I'm, I'm going to go this way. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go that way. And it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) And we did. We lost you guys for hours. And, you know, because we left with a group of 30 plus. And then there was your faction who, like, split off. And when we reunited, you know, when we we did come back together again, there was like, it was like a, it very much was a reunion. There, Everyone was hugging and happy to see each other. But the six of you had this, like, instant bond this this shared experience that was so evident that (laughs) like within minutes of us all coming back together again the six of you just had your own conversation (laughs) within the larger group like that still existed never went away you know i think part part of it was that madison kind of anointed himself the burning man tour guide that night (laughs) which was kind of interesting because it was his second day at burning man Uh, yeah, he, he did. Give, he gave a great tour. I learned a ton. <laughs> yeah, I remember the my the first night uh, I was at Burning Man. I went to bed, and I actually, as I was lying in my sleeping bag, I was like, I don't know if this place is for me. These people are all weird, and this place is weird, and I just might be too square for this place. Uh, cut to twenty four hours later, I'm leading a group of five people around on acid for the first time, and I'm like, "This is the best place I've ever been. I can't believe I have to say goodbye to it in five days." <laughs> <laughs> it's a quite a common experience. <laughs> yeah, Madison, you also I remember you having a, quite a, a profound experience later in the night. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a different year, actually. But yes, yeah, <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> Instead of laughing, I was crying. Uh, and I, I had just started dating uh, the woman who's now my wife and she came to Burning Man and we were just in the yurt towards the end of the night and I was trying to tell her I loved her, which I'd done hundreds of times before. We'd been dating a few months. And every time I got to love that word, I would just start bawling my eyes out for about 20 minutes. So finally we got, uh, and it was just like I was, I was feeling in totality the idea behind those words in that moment. And it was really like short-circuiting my system. So luckily she was moved and not horrified by this. <laughs> just <laughs> held me to her bosom until I'd cried myself out. <laughs> and uh, so we, I'm like, I finally get myself together. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone's just heard me wailing in here for 45 minutes. And she's like, we'll get you cleaned up. No one will know. And she wipes down my face. I'm like, okay, I'm okay. I can go out. No one will know. I walk straight over to the group and I say, everyone, I was just crying for 45 minutes. That's where I was. (laughs) And then I think I started crying again as I (laughs) hugged everyone else. I I cried a lot my first year at Burning Man too. Yeah. It can be a a very moving, uh, moving kind of experience. 
Yes, it, it really can. And that's, uh, you know, there's an example of tragedy plus time. Not that that was a tragedy, but uh, I was very embarrassed about crying. And then I went and told everyone. And it was a funny... funny yeah, you, you, have, you have reduced the window, huh? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, really, it's, really, it's really the key to never be like embarrassed. Down 10 seconds? Yes. <laughs> there's a... Man, I can't remember who told this joke. Um, <laughs> it's not even a very good joke, but it comes to mind with the idea of proximity of the tragedy. And it's the joke is, boy, I don't know about you, but Kennedy could use another motorcade like he could use a hole in the head. <laughs> <laughs> and like the whole crap, no one laughs. It's like this general groan. He, he like jumps on it. He's like, what, too soon? Too soon? All right, let me break out my Lincoln jokes. <laughs> it's like a very well-crafted like one-two punch. Well, it is it is interesting because I don't think anyone would ever groan at a Lincoln joke, but people still would groan at the JFK joke. So it is it is like oh, hundred. You can laugh at anything that's a hundred years old, but there's certain <laughs> things even fifty years old. You're like, whoa, easy, dude. That's a little sensitive. Did you, Madison? So there's a comedian when we were both living in New York that I discovered when you were hosting the New Young Comedians show, Anthony Jeselnik. Yeah. Um, have you seen his special that's, I think, on Netflix now? It was like a show he recorded in San Francisco a year or two ago. I have not seen that one. He, ma- like, he makes that exact point about the proximity to the event and how a big part of his, what he seeks to do is to wait as little time as possible. And sort of he uses his, his media, his social medium, like Twitter, or however it is that he's communicating. It's yeah. very much an active process for him to filtering to yeah well, or to play with that uh gap of time between something being taboo and something being genuine uh that you can appreciate in a way that's more than just it being tragic and horrible yeah it, i mean it's it is interesting uh because one thing you you realize when you perform comedy is how unobjective it is because um, a joke will work one night and not work the next night and it's the same joke. It's just a different audience or a different vibe, and it doesn't work. And you know, there are jokes about, say, nine eleven that if you told them on nine twelve, you would be a pariah. If you told them now, people would laugh really hard. And it's the same joke. It's just uh, has to do with how how the audience is feeling at the time. Um, and and then you know, there are certain people that that joke. If the perfect joke time is, if you get past the rawness, the joke can be a release, you know. So there's there's sort of um, the famous uh, someone did a, a 9/11 joke at a, a play, Playboy roast. It was um, was that Gilbert Gottfried? Yeah, mm-hmm. and at first it was kind of bombing, but he, and then he went into uh, famously an aristocrat's joke. And it was just, it's just this goofy sort of standard joke that every comedian knows. And people really started laughing really hard. And it, it really was related to 9-11. It was like a week later. And it was probably the first time anyone had laughed since that thing. So if you tell a joke right at that time where you're in that middle of, is it still too soon? It can be a real release and cathartic uh, event. You know, the first time you can laugh at something kind of means you're starting to heal from the, the tragedy, I think. Yeah, you broke the seal at that point. Yeah. And it's it's weird the funny, you know, there's you know, a lot of tragic comedy, you know. Uh there's sometimes I've laughed the hardest have been like right after funerals, you know, you're sharing stories about the person who passed 
and uh, it just feels really good to laugh uh, with them and even at them, you know. Yeah, the whole concept of uh, like laughing so hard you cry, you know, I, I think that uh, it, it's, it, it, it can be unrelated to, you know, tragedy and sadness, but I think that it's definitely connected. There's a continuum there, you know, where sometimes you just, you just kind of need to cry, but you laugh, you, you laugh to get there, you know? Yeah. And when you say that, Joe, it springs to mind, you know, that somatic response of tears and the overlap and the overlap between comedy and an entheogenic experience um, and how it it seems even more connected. Yeah, we talked in the uh, it's, I guess, the last episode or one of the last episodes with um, Kirk Rudder about um, his experience, uh, you know, in a psychedelic medicine trial. And we touched on the concept of, you know, the, the psychedelic yawn, as I think he termed it. Um, and just how, you know, you, it can, the yawning can then turn into like tears and, you know, and there's oftentimes a release there and it doesn't necessarily, you know, be, become associated with a certain memory or like, you know, prompting. It's just sort of like a general catharsis that's happening, you know, again, thanks to the entheogens and comedy can get you there too. Another example. It's true about how comedy can be a connector um, and it can be an experience across generations and that there are certain like well-made quote unquote kids movies where like there are jokes that are embedded that kids couldn't understand. Like I think Shrek may have been one of the like when it first came out, it very consciously tried to have humor for the parents and the kids so that both of you, you know, both generations can go to the movies and have the same experience and that's so powerful for the kids to like enjoy something as much as their parents are enjoying it without the realization that they're enjoying it for very different reasons. People that may not be looking at comedy, seeking comedy as an entheogen or as an entheogenic experience, but just, uh, they might just find themselves at a comedy show or they might just, you know, agree to watch something funny with, with a friend. Uh, and before they know it, their, their mind is, uh, is being expanded um, so yeah, it, as, as, uh, who, who put it there, Kevin, entheogens for everyone. That's, uh, it's, a, it's a great appeal of comedy as an entheogen for sure. And, and I'm also reminded of the story Madison told about being in the car with his dad where he doesn't know why, but he's laughing so hard at this Bucky Goldstein joke. And his dad is like, wow, I didn't realize how anti-Semitic my son was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a pervert he was. <laughs> it really, it really brought Dad and I together. Our <laughs> but it is true that the the, the kind of uh, cross generational thing. I mean, I've definitely had, uh, especially with Carlin early on. My my mom sort of encouraged my uh, my Carlin habit, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, she definitely got as much a kick out of it as I did, if not even more, because uh, you know, obviously certain topics were a little above my head at that point. But uh, yeah, it was a, a, a kind of a nice, you, you know, cross generational unifier, and uh, it, it's that usually doesn't happen because I feel like comedy is so uh, directed towards an age group, um, and it's so timely. It's something that's funny today is not funny in three weeks. Um, so when someone does achieve that effect, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, likewise, I don't, I don't know if I could be friends with the person who told me they just didn't like George Carlin. Right. And I'd have a hard time with that. You know? <laughs> so as we often try to do here on the show, uh, we try to identify what the gateway drug is. And I guess uh, for Kevin, it's pretty safe to say Carlin was your gateway comic. Sure, sure. I, I have to say even even uh, maybe even a little bit earlier or, or you could 
possibly even at the same time was In Living Color, which was just the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life when uh, I was at that age. And it had a lot of that, what we've talked about, the the kind of uh, the revealing of the truth and the satire and, and everything else. It just had so much um, just racial and social commentary all over it. And I just remember, i never been a TV person, but I could not wait for In Living Color each week. It was uh, it was like the highlight of my week. It was Sunday night, Living Color. I'd say the answer for me was when I was exposed to a film that taught me about the deeper connection of human and dolphins um, through Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is Ace Ventura is maybe the time I've laughed most in a movie in my life, and it's I can like instantly yeah. go back to that moment in my life and how that felt like just falling out of my chair practically and it, it's a similar feeling of like going back to that first acid monday at burning man where it's, yeah. it's so tangible in my mind and the it's it's in both comedy and i think with psychedelics when you find people that like those experiences it's uh it's like you're finding your sort of tribe your people through this yeah. positive inclusion thing where you know so many of the ways we separate each other in normal life is I'm from this country you're from that country so we're against each other you know our skins are different color whereas with comedy or psychedelics you're forming these groups based on hey we both really like this thing that's cool we must like each other we'll have uh, links to the book in uh, our show notes at entheogenshow.com as well and thank you again to Madison Perry for joining us on Entheogen yeah, my pleasure. And uh, as the last thing I'll say, we talked a lot very seriously about comedy today. So go out and just listen to these people we talked about and laugh at them. Uh, cause that's really the best way to experience it. We were very conscious about comedy. Go get, go get subconscious, man. <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> well said. Well said.